Harry Burnett had a sweet job, literally. He looks like a sweet guy, doesn't he? He went to work in 1917 on Milton Hershey's dairy farm in Pennsylvania. Worked there for several years before he moved over to the chocolate factory and began working in Hershey's chocolate factory. But Harry and his wife had a, a large and growing family. Eventually, he would have 16 children. And so Harry was always looking for ways to make extra money. And he really admired his boss. He enjoyed working in, in, in the chocolate business and the candy business. And he thought that, that he could also make candy and maybe make a little bit of money. So in 1923, Harry started his own candy com company working out of his basement. And for the first few years, um, things were kind of hit and miss, honestly. Uh, they, they sold candy in that region. Some of the, the candy he named after his kids. Johnny bars were caramel and molasses. Lizzie bars were coconut and, and milk chocolate. And business was just, well, it was just okay. He, he, you know, some years he'd make enough to take care of his family. Some years he really wouldn't and he found himself deeply in debt. But he kept experimenting, Harry Burnett did. And in 1928, he invented a new candy, developed a new candy that was an almost overnight success. It began to sell um, just crazy amounts, and by, by the time World War II rolled around, it was far and away his number one bestseller, so much beyond everything else that he decided to suspend making all other candy and just make this one item. Today, Harry's Candy has annual sales of over $500 million. It's ranked number two in the candy bar category. And enough of them are produced every year to feed one to every man, woman, boy, and girl in the United States, Japan, Europe, Australia, China, Africa, and India. Not bad for a Pennsylvania dairyman who decided to name this candy bar not after one of his kids, but after himself. His name was Harry Burnett Reese. And I just personally believe that Reese's peanut butter cups are one of mankind's greatest achievements. I mean, absolutely. There are few things in life that are better than a Reese's peanut butter cup. Because here's the thing about a Reese's. It's just two ingredients. Right? It's peanut butter and it's chocolate. Now, I love chocolate. But a lot of people do. But what you may not know about me is that I need a 12-step group for my issues with peanut butter. <laughs> I, we can't keep enough peanut butter in my house. We all love it. I'm not going to be able to finish that. So chocolate and peanut butter. But when you put them together... Man, it just goes to a whole nother level, doesn't it? It's the greatest thing ever. But now here's the thing about a Reese's. You really can't say, well, I'm just going to eat the chocolate. Right? That'd be crazy. And you certainly can't say, well, I'm just going to eat the peanut butter. Because when those two ingredients are put together the way that the H.B. Reese Candy Company decided they should be put together, they ceased being chocolate and peanut butter, and they became one. They became something brand new. Listen to me now. Marriage works exactly the same way. 
Exactly the same way. God takes two separate and distinct people, and he puts them together. He blends them together, and he makes them one. How does that work? How does it happen that God takes two people who commit themselves to each other in marriage and makes them one? The Bible calls it one flesh. That a man and woman cease to be independent individuals when they marry and they become something new as God joins them together. But how is a one flesh marriage created? That's the question we ought to be asking and that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today. I'm going to tell you that in my experience as a pastor and in 25 years of being married, The root of almost all problems in marriage is selfishness. It it really is. Of course, you guys know, and you've heard me, some of you have heard me preach enough to know that I think that's the root of all sin is selfishness. But the root of most conflict and most problems in marriage is selfishness. Well, yeah, okay, one flesh, that's great. But you know what? This is all about getting what I want. This is all about uh, my point of view carrying the day. This is all about us doing what I want to do. And one flesh, that's fine, whatever, as long as I get what I want out of this marriage. And you know what? If I don't, then I'll move on to someone or something else. Selfishness, self-centeredness is the, is the antithesis. It's the complete and total opposite of one flesh. Because one flesh is where I become joined to someone, where I become part of someone and something that's bigger and greater and more important than me. And my work becomes about not what do I want, but what do we want and how can I work for the good of my marriage and my relationship to this person. Adam understood one flesh because his wife literally came from his flesh. Remember last week we saw that passage of Scripture that says they couldn't find a suitable helper from him from all other creation, so God put him to sleep, put Adam to sleep, and opened up his side and took out a rib. And the Scripture says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last... The man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. I want you to know that Adam is using very poetic language here. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it rhymes. By the way, ladies, there's nothing wrong with finding a man that can communicate, knows how to turn a phrase. Unfortunately, I do not have the gift of poetry. My poems kind of run to uh, roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, this one don't, the end. (laughs) Adam is saying, we're one, same bone, same flesh, I am you and you are me, we are one. They were literally one flesh, and God wants that kind of relationship. He wants every uh, married couple to experience that same oneness. So today, here's what I want us to do. We're going to look at the three places in the Bible where we read about two becoming one. Because I think if we look at those three places, we will see three things that God sets in motion that helps couples become one flesh. I think that's what we want in our marriages. And I think if we're willing to cooperate with God, we can take several steps forward this morning. 
in oneness and unity in our marriage. Here's the first one. Here's number one. You've got some message notes that were in your bulletin. On the back of that page is also the scriptures that we're going to be looking at as we go along, in case you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Some places there with some blanks for you to fill in. Just kind of give you some notes that you can refer back to. Number one, God tells couples to leave others and unite with each other. Now, this just seems kind of basic, right? God says, leave others and unite with each other. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, right after Adam has said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The Bible says this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And can I just say this about what the Bible says about marriage? The Bible talks about marriage as a man and a woman being joined together. The Bible doesn't really give us any other options when it comes to that, okay? You can believe whatever you want to believe, but the Bible, in the Bible, marriage is a man and a woman coming together, being one for life, okay? That's for what it's worth. Sometimes we might be tempted to think that that in one flesh we lose our identity, that we lose who we are and we just become some kind of conglomeration. I mean, you know, it's not Brad and Angelina, it's Brangelina, right? And it's not, it's not Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner, it's Benifer. Vicky and I could never do that because we'd be skicky, and that's just unpleasant. Becoming one flesh doesn't mean that we lose who we are, that we lose the things that we're interested in. It doesn't mean that we become a clone of another person or that we become exactly alike. What it means is there's a shift in our primary identity and affiliation. Now, follow me here. See, leaving father and mother in that culture was a huge deal. Because in in the Jewish culture, family was everything. You know, when you read the Bible and you come to all these lists of who begat who and who was the father of whom and whose family this person was part of, you know why that's in there? Because family was so important. Family was everything. But listen to me now. If two people are going to become one flesh, there has to be a shift. There has to be a shift away from family connection and a shift toward connection with our spouse. Last week we said that the the top three reasons couples fight is money, lack of communication, and sex. If you want to round out that top five, the other two are kids and (laughs) in-laws. Absolutely not making that up. If, If I fail to make a decision or do what I think is right, and best for my family because of what my mom and dad or my in-laws might think or because they might get upset, I've got problems. Do you hear me? If you know what God wants you to do, you do it. You don't care what anybody thinks. You know, it's it's an entirely different context, but when Paul had people coming at him from every direction as far as opinions went, he said this in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. He said, "I I got a choice here. I can do what God tells me to do, or I can please people. I can't always do both. 
We can't live in God's will if our primary concern is pleasing other people. And we certainly cannot be happily married if we're constantly concerned about what our parents or our in-laws will think. We have to leave father and mother if we want to be one flesh. Boy, and here's where the mama-in-laws start getting angry with me and upset. Don't hate me because I'll tell you the truth. But, but pastor, uh, what about honor your father and mother? Hey, by all means, honor your father and mother, but your first allegiance is to your spouse. Always. All things. And by the way, I'm tempted to tell some of you younger kids to stop up your ears. But, well, no, it works out. Honoring our parents doesn't mean we always have to do everything that they tell us. Unless, and this is big, if you're living under their roof, you got to do what they tell you to do. That's just the way it is. But if you're married and you're living on your own, you don't have to obey what your parents say. You're not under their authority anymore. You're under God's authority. You and your spouse have come together, one flesh, under God's authority, not mom and daddy's, not mother-in-law and father-in-law's. Our parents can influence us and should influence us and advise us in certain things, in certain areas. But, listen, we have to decide if, if they should be listened to based on the example of their lives. Let's fix and get tied in here. If your parents are always broke, you better be careful about listening to their financial advice. Right? Unless you're going to do the opposite of what they did. <laughs> if your parents have got three or four or five past marriages between the two of them, you better think twice about taking their marriage advice. I love that song by Tim Wilson, 100 Things to Remember. One of them is, if you've been married nine times, it might be you. <laughs> but now listen. If your parents follow Jesus... And they've been married 30 or 40 or 50 years. Listen to them. Doesn't mean you have to do everything they tell you. But it, it, it sure means that their counsel just might be wise. And listening, them could, listening to them could save you years of painful experimentation on your own. Years of going down a wrong road. But you've got to decide that as you listen to the Lord. Let me tell you something else, parents. Sometimes we're the reason that our kids can't leave us and be united to their spouse. Because they don't know how to do anything. We've done it all for them. All their lives, right? We, we've, all, we've done their laundry and we've, we've, we've cooked for them. I mean, how do, how, does, how do people get to be 23, 24, 25 years old and all they know how to cook is a Pop-Tart in a Hot Pocket? How does that happen? Because we've shortchanged them as parents. We've done everything for them. Or we've agreed to things that are completely ridiculous that, that will prevent them from becoming one with their spouse. Let me give you an example. If your son comes to you and says, hey, my girlfriend and I want to get married, and we're going to live in my room until we can afford a place of our own. Here's the answer for that. Are you out of your ever-loving mind? No. No way. No how. No. You might want to write that down. Why is that the right answer? Because if he can't afford an apartment, he can't afford to get married. 
I'm sorry you don't like that, but it's true. He's not looking for marriage. He's looking for a roommate he can have sex with and still have mom do his laundry and cook his meals. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, where'd he go? I got a rebounder. I got a boomerang kid. <laughs> I got a kid that moved off to the big city and found out it was expensive and, 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 and tough. And so he came back home. And he lives in my garage. <laughs> Am I lying? <laughs> and guess what? If he came and said, hey, we want to get married. Me and my girlfriend want to get married. They would not live in my garage. That's not how it works. Our goal as parents is to teach our kids to be able to live on their own. To be able to, to, to be married and to have a career. And, and most importantly, to walk with God. And that starts early. Every child needs responsibilities. They need chores. They need to earn some of their money to buy some of the things they want. If we do everything for them and buy everything they want, hey, they're not dumb. They will never leave home. So mom and dad, it's up to us to train our kids to be responsible. Kids, it's up to you to listen to your parents. Learn from them so that the day will come when you can be transferred out of their authority and become united with your spouse under God's authority. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, My child, listen when your father corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instruction. What you learn from them will crown you with grace and be a chain of honor around your neck. Teach your kids how to do life. Teach them that the day is coming when they're going to have to be on their own and prepare them for it. And you know what will happen? Your voice will be louder in their lives when they need some advice and some wisdom and some counsel. Here's another way God helps us become one. Here's number two. God unites us when we invite Him into our marriage. God unites us when we invite Him into our marriage. In Matthew chapter 19. This is the second place in Scripture where we read about two becoming one. Beginning in verse 3. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap Him. This is Jesus. Tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the Scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning... God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. We are uh, we're thrift store shoppers. We love Goodwill, Salvation Army store. This summer we were in one I found a brand new pair of men's flip-flops. Still had the tags on. Didn't look like they'd ever been on anybody's feet. $3. So I bought them. Took them home, began to wear them. And after a couple of days, the sole on the right one separated. So that, you know, when I walked, it didn't go flip-flop. It went flip-flop-flap. <laughs> and <clears throat> that's annoying. 
And so I thought, well, there's no problem. I'll fix it. I'll glue it together. So I got our super glue, and I just slathered it on there, and I pushed them down together and held them. And I was feeling really good about my repair job until I realized that I had glued my thumb and my index finger together. Now, let me tell you, super glue, whatever its shortcomings, is real good at keeping skin bonded to skin. You would not believe how much I had to peel my fingers apart. And guess what? It didn't, super glue doesn't come off. It has to wear off. I had to pick at it and scrape it for weeks to get it to come off. I was so traumatized by it that when the sole on the left flip-flop separated, I still haven't fixed it. (laughs) Super glue was doing what super glue does. It was was joining two things together. Listen, God uses a kind of a relational superglue when he joins two people into one flesh. It's not intended to come apart. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a, a very interesting passage of Scripture where it talks about the benefits of two people coming together, working together, being united to one another. And it says this, it's in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. Pay attention here, this is a picture of marriage. If if one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Some translations say a three-strand cord is not easily broken. In marriage, the husband is one strand, the wife is the other strand, and God is the third strand, the strand that keeps it from being easily broken. God uses himself to glue two people together and make us one flesh. That's why when, God, when Jesus is asked the question about divorce, he goes back to the very beginning, doesn't he? And he answers the question based on the, the one flesh unity that, that God set out at the very beginning. But we've got to understand their question. Here's what they asked. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason. Now, in Jesus' day, there were two primary rabbis. Rabbis were the teachers. There were two teachers that almost everybody, every Jew kind of aligned themselves with either a teacher whose name was Hillel or one whose name was Shammai. It was Hillel and Shammai. And they differed on a lot of things to varying degrees, but when it came to divorce, they were miles apart. Hillel believed that men could divorce their wives For any reason. By the way, in that day, wives could not divorce their husbands. Only husbands could divorce their wives. And Hillel said, you can do it for any reason. If you don't like her anymore, if she cooks your eggs wrong, even if you found somebody you think is more attractive, all you've got to do is say to her, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. You had to say it three times. Then you prepared a certificate of divorce to keep it all legal, and boom, it was done. Shammai came at it a little bit differently. Now, Shammai was an interesting character. Uh, For example, Shammai believed that you could never be the least bit deceptive or dishonest. Everybody goes, well, yeah, but now think about it. It Shammai said if you went to somebody's house and they served you dinner 
and they served you something awful? You know how that is, right? You don't want to say because you've been to somebody's house that's sitting by you, right? You go to somebody's house, they serve you something that's just dang near inedible. And they say, how is it? You say, wow, that's really, uh, that's really something. Can I have the recipe? Because what you're thinking is, I want to take this out of circulation so that no one else in the world ever has to eat this again. Shammai said you couldn't say that. You had to say, this tastes like hot garbage. Shammai said you told the truth at all times, no matter what. He said if you go to a wedding and you think the bride is homelier than a bowling shoe, that if you're asked about it, you're obligated to say, she's ugly. (laughs) Now think about it. But in spite of stuff like that, Shammai was one of these revered rabbis, this teacher everybody respected. And he said, divorce is permitted only in the case of adultery. And that's what Jesus said too. It surprises the Pharisees because Jesus' teaching usually comes down on Hillel's side. But in this case, he sides with Shammai. That's in Matthew 19, picking up in verse 7, verses 7 through 9. Then why did Moses, this is the Pharisees asking, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, I'm going to tell you something. Whether it's your Bible or the message notes or whatever it is, you need to circle Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, if you are a married person. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now, let's not get stuck on verse 9. That's a message for another day, and we'll look at that sometime in the future. Instead, let's look at two things Jesus has said here. First of all, Jesus has said, it's not God's original intent. And we know that, right, because we saw God's original intent back in Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be united to his wife, and the two shall become one. That was was God's original intent. But look at the second thing Jesus said. Jesus said the real reason that people are looking for excuses to get divorced is because they are hard-hearted. In other words, Jesus took all of the reasons that we find or we give for divorce and he boiled them all down to one, the condition of the heart. What's quiet in here? No, pastor, we have irreconcilable differences. Are you kidding me? Vicki and I have had irreconcilable differences every single day of our marriage for 30 years. We have irreconcilable differences before 10 o'clock in the morning. Every day. There's stuff we're never going to agree on. Because men and women are different. Remember, we said last week we're made that way by, by God's design. He created us different. He made us different. So the key is not what our differences are. The key is how are we going to pursue becoming one flesh with our spouse? We do it by leaving mom and dad and being united to our spouse, but we also do it by recognizing that God is the one who can join us together. 
God is the one who joins us together. He makes people one. Most of us have probably seen what's called the golden triangle in marriage. What it basically says is that the more we connect to God, the closer we, we, we get to God, the more we become one flesh with our spouse. The more committed we are to each other, the closer we get to one another, then the closer we are to God and the more one flesh we become. That's what the, that's what the, the, the golden triangle or the God triangle says. The closer we get to God, the closer we get together. Too many people buy into the lie that says, well, if I was just with someone else, things would be better. Things would be, at least they would be different. But the facts don't back that up. Now, we all know, don't we? We can all quote how, how, what, per, what percentage of first marriages fail. 50, 55%. We all know that, right? But did you know that 60% of second marriages fail? And that 75% of third marriages fail? And I won't keep going because the pattern just repeats itself. Because the issue isn't the other person. It's the condition of the heart. Well, let me give you another statistic. If a couple is following Jesus, if they each read their Bibles and they pray on a regular basis and they attend church together regularly and they serve in the ministry of the church, the odds of divorce drop to 1 in 1,015. Now, why is that true? It's true because those people are placing themselves in God's hands and they're allowing him to do what only he can do. Take two people and super glue them together. Take two people and join them together. He's the third cord. He's the third strand that makes it hard to break the other two apart. He makes us one flesh when we invite him into our marriage. Turn off Dr. Phil. And Oprah, she's gone now anyway, right? Turn off, turn off all that other advice. Turn off the advice in the supermarket magazines and invite God into your marriage. And watch your unity and your oneness grow. Here's the third way God helps us become one. Here's number three. God shows us that we are not our own. That we are not our own. Last week we said, let's get in a race to put one another first, to meet one another's needs. Here's, it comes from the Bible. Here's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 33. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, As the Scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. In other words, how this happens is, a, is really mysterious. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Some people think sex is the most important part of marriage. But it's not. You know why? Because every creature that God created a male and a female of have sex. But they don't get married. 
Some people think that strong emotional feelings are the most important part of a marriage. That's why people will say ridiculous things like, well, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. That's dumber than a box of hair. (laughs) They say it because they want to end the relationship. Hey, but guess what? Dogs have strong emotions. You don't see them walking down the aisle. You know what I had a guy say to me? He said, you want to know the difference between your wife and your dog? I'm curious type. To my own detriment sometimes. I said, sure. He said, lock them both in the trunk of your car. Come back in an hour and let them out. Which one's happy to see you? <laughs> now, I'll... now, don't go away mad. I'll tell one on the husbands, okay? Sometime in the next couple of weeks. I'm an equal opportunity offender. So what is the most important part of a marriage? It's the commitment a man and woman make to each other. It's the commitment couples make to each other. If I performed your, your wedding, you've seen this little book. I got this book as an ordination gift when I was ordained in the ministry at 20 years old. So I've had it 30 years. And I've used it in every wedding that I've ever done. And there's a section in here that I read every time where I have the couples repeat vows to each other that say, I take you to be my spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are separated by death. But now here's the problem. The two people getting married have not experienced most of that, have they? They don't know what it means to go through real hard times with this person. They don't know what it means to have a sick spouse. They don't know what what having riches means. They They don't know how they'll react if things get a whole lot worse than they are right now. So here's the thing about a a vow, a promise, a commitment. We make it to the other person and ourselves that we're going to be here no matter what. No matter what happens. See, it's easy to bail out when things get tough. That is our tendency, to run from things that are unpleasant, things that are painful. It's easy to bail when things get tough. That's why we have to decide beforehand that we are not going to bail out ever. No matter what. Richer, poorer, sickness, health. No matter what comes. The commitment is the essence of what it means for a couple to be one. Listen, you will never hear me say that our marriages can be conflict-free. They will not be. There's going to be conflict. But we aren't two separate teams trying to win a fight. In fact, when couples fight, if one of us wins, we both lose. Because we're on the same team. We're not trying to win a war. We're not trying to make sure we get our way. We're not trying to make sure that our opinion carries the day. 
There aren't two teams in marriage. There's just one. And if you want to diffuse tension and conflict in your marriage, do this. Do this the next time you see that an argument is beginning to escalate, that things are beginning to get heated. Just, just call a timeout and take your spouse's hand and say, I am not your enemy. We're on the same team. And we want the same thing here. We want to work through this issue and find a solution that works for us. Paul compared being one flesh in marriage to being a Christian. He said our marriages are an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. It was in the papers this week. It was on the news. Jesus had a wife. <gasps> yeah. The church is called the bride of Christ. We've not always been beautiful and lovely, but he's committed to us. So much so that he would give his life. Christians are all part of the body of Christ. We have different functions. But we're all equally part of the body of Christ, and it's the same in marriage. We're one flesh, one body, united through Jesus Christ. L listen, there's something significant in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 through 27. He says, so God has put the body together. He's talking about the church. The body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. Remember, marriage is a model of the church. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. God takes two and makes them one. Because marriage is God bringing two people together in covenant partnership with one another. Bringing two people together who make a commitment to stay together and work things out in good times and in tough times. A covenant bringing two people together who say, we're going to put God first in our relationship. We're going to lead each other to God. Just like we're going to race each other to, to, to meet one another's needs and take care of one another, we're going to race each other to, to lead one another to God. We're going to take our steps together toward God. And we're going to become one flesh. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.